Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a wonderful show for you today. I'm here with Daniel Yuta, Junior Fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. He's joining me to discuss his new book, The Age of Secrecy, Jews, Christians, and the Economy of Secrets, 1400 to 1800, published in 2015 by Yale University Press. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome, Shira. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be interviewing you today. Thank you. Your work is really situated in what scholars call the early modern period. Can you give us an overview of what's happening during this period and why you think it gave rise to the age of secrecy? Right. Yeah. So my work is indeed focusing on early modern Europe, which means uh, the period between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. So from the 15th century to the 18th century which was a transformational time in European history, but also in Jewish history. And um, to name just a few things, I mean, I mentioned the Renaissance, I mentioned the Enlightenment. We see uh, the Reformation in between, the splintering of Western Christendom, um, and so on. Um, It is also what I called an age of secrecy, because we see an unprecedented interest in secrets, an unprecedented appreciation for secrets, And in my book, I try to show that this appreciation um, was productive both for Jews and for Christians and also opened up opportunities for interaction between these two groups, which I argue haven't really been fully studied so far. And you mentioned when we're thinking about this age of secrecy, you know, when we think about it now or when I think about secrets, I often think of secrets as something that could be harmful or potentially quite negative, but you don't think it was seen as such during the early modern period? Yeah, that's a very good point because that's precisely um, that's precisely the um, the attitude that we have come to adopt today. That secrecy is often seen as something negative. It's about withholding knowledge. It's about almost a kind of antisocial behavior, suppressing knowledge that should be out there. But in that period that I study, from the 15th to the 18th century we often find the assumption that good knowledge is by default secret knowledge and that secret knowledge is by default good or true knowledge. And there are various reasons, historical factors uh, uh, accounting for that historical attitude. Uh, There is, for instance, um, I think in the political sphere, you see um, the the, um, increased interest in the notion of state secrets uh, has something to do with obviously authors such as Machiavelli in the in the 16th century it has something to do with the rediscovery of ancient Roman concepts about state secrecy the the very term arcana imperi the, the secrets of the states the secrets of the empire is a, a Roman term that was recovered in that period but of course that that desire for secrecy that appreciation for secrecy uh, also manifests itself in other areas uh, in the economic sphere for instance where trade secrets are are very important in this period. And lastly, also in the scientific sphere, 
And that's probably where the focus of my book is, where we see an unprecedented interest in uh, knowledge forms such as uh, alchemy or magic or what people at the time called natural magic um, and things like um, Neoplatonism, uh, Hermeticism, um, doctrines, in other words, that are uh, that put an emphasis on on occult knowledge. Um, and I think this this um, um, the combination of factors uh, allows me to speak of an age of secrecy. But of course, what I'm ultimately interested in is, in, is are, are the opportunities that this age of secrecy secrecy provided for Jews and and Christians. So my book really is about interaction, is about interfaith cooperation and the exchange of knowledge between two groups. Excellent. And you really mentioned um, that Christians during this period sometimes thought of Jews as fundamentally secretive. And that really helped form these types of, as you said, um, economic and social interactions. So can you tell us a bit why about how or why Christians thought of Jews as fundamentally secretive and what that meant and how Jews responded to these ideas? Right. Well, that's a very good point. The um, Because here there's some, um, we have to distinguish between a stereotype on the one hand, a deep-seated stereotype, and something that could become productive for Jews. Um, and uh, well, let me speak first about the, as you say, the Christian motifs for um, attributing secrecy or a certain competence, a certain expertise in secrets to to Jews. So there, there are various reasons for that. There's first of all um, the Hebrew language, which seemed very exotic to say the least to Christians. Uh, before the 15th century, we don't really have Christian scholars who systematically study the Hebrew language. So the Hebrew language was shrouded in, in secrecy, if you will. Um, there are small things like diacritical signs, which, as you know, are essentially in, in Hebrew, um, that only uh, fostered that impression that, that there is something that there is something hidden in the Hebrew language. And of course, um, with the rise of Christian Hebraism, that is the interest in the Hebrew language and in, in Hebrew texts, um, the Christian interest in these things, um, we also see growing awareness on the Christian side of um, the um, what the rabbinic tradition called the secret sense of, um, of Scripture. As you know, there are traditional rabbinical um, exegesis holds that, that the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, has four different levels of meaning. And the last one, which is captured in the Hebrew acronym Remez, the last one is Sod, which means in Hebrew um, um, secret. Mm. So, um, so this, this idea is also filtering into uh, Christian thought. And, um, and with that, those phenomena that I've mentioned, Neoplatonism and Hermeticism, um, um, there is also an there's also the assumption that Jews are guardians of a what, what people in Latin call prisca sapientia, kind of primordial knowledge that would even, you know, date back to before the Bible. Um, and Jews were um, being uh, such an, you know, an old community uh, were seen as guardians of that that knowledge. So, but all these things, of course, as I was saying, are are cliches, are in a way distorted um, ideas about Judaism. So, in that sense, this is the story of of also of stereotypes. But what I'm really interested in in the book is to see what Jews actually made of these tropes, what Jews made of these stereotypes, and right. what I what I observe is that there's actually um, that, that some Jews were actually able to turn these cliches into an asset into something that became productive, into something that opened up opportunities. And that's really what I, I was trying to pursue in the book. 
So let's look at some of these fields or areas in which Jews are um, responding to these charges or using these charges to um, find new opportunities for themselves. Um, I'm wondering, though, you know, did you find in all these different venues that you were looking at, is there a profile, um, like an educational profile, economic or professional profile that characterizes these Jews who engage with forms of secret knowledge? Right. Um, Good point. I actually think there is none. And perhaps that's precisely what made this marketplace for secrets so attractive for Jews. I speak of, as you may have seen in the book, I speak of a marketplace of secrets, a market for secrets. I call that the economy of secrets at the time. And it's precisely the informal character, the informal nature of that market that made it so open and so permeable to Jews, but also to other groups that were marginalized in the knowledge economy back in the day. And that would include, for instance, women, both Jewish women and Christian women. Um, the uh, If we look at the... Uh, the one institution that we uh, associate with learning today, namely the university, mm-hmm. the university was a very socially um, and hierarchically very petrified institution in the day, very much indebted to a sort of Aristotelian understanding of, of nature where you wouldn't really do experiments but just repeat um, the kind of knowledge that had been passed down from antiquity. And I argue that there is, um, if we leave the universities aside, we actually find a, a flourishing and, 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 and very multifaceted economy of secrets in which Jews could um, self-fashion themselves as experts. And some of them are very successful doing so. Some of them became, uh, um, you know, close, uh, very close advisors of kings. Um, they advised governments. They proposed technological projects. They invented um, devices, they were involved in alchemical experiments and so on. So this is just the range of, of things that I, I cover. There is, since you asked about profile, there is a, um, a designation that is sometimes used at the time, which is called the professor of secrets. Um, but even that was a very loose designation, but there are certainly Jewish professors of secrets who offered this whole range of secret knowledge and were very successful in doing so. You know, one of the fields that you talk about, which I actually found very surprising, was this involvement or engagement with alchemy, which, again, with this 21st century understanding of, you know, alchemy as magic or the occult. But what did people in the early modern period think alchemy meant and how were Jews involved in this trade? Yeah, I think that was actually for me personally one of the most fascinating uh, uh, aspects of that work to realize just how many Jewish alchemists there were, a field that hasn't really been studied. What we do have are studies about, you know, alchemical manuscripts in Hebrew or alchemical manuscripts attributed to Hebrew, but the stories behind these texts haven't really received a lot of attention. So I was trying to uh, uh, delve into that a bit. Um, as you say, alchemy was um, what people understood by the term alchemy back in the day was very different from what we associate with it today. For us today, um, it always has that um, negative connotation. We think of it as a kind of, pro- at best, a kind of prototype of modern chemistry, but more often uh, we associate it with fraudulent activity. And of course, there was that branch of alchemy that was fraudulent. Uh, there was a part of, of what we call transmutational uh, alchemy, the, 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 the pursuit of uh, transmuting uh, um, base metals into gold. But there was only a tiny, there was only a tiny fraction of, of alchemical practices at the time. There's also uh, what we call medical alchemy, um, 
So um, the fusion of, of medical knowledge and alchemical practices, Jews were involved in that for sure. And there's um, a whole body of practices that, that we now, that we could subsume under the term practical alchemy. So that leads us into fields such as, um, uh, you know, um, um, for instance, glass making or saltpeter production. That's actually something that one of my Jewish protagonists was very involved in. There was a very important resource back in the day, saltpeter, um, metallurgy, and so on and so on. So what we see is, what we end up seeing is actually a range of very useful, of, of, of forms of so-called use, useful knowledge, um, things that were really important also in the process of state formation and, uh, and all that. And um, that is a very different picture from the one that you could find, especially in, in older literature about Jewish professions in the early modern period, where there's, there's a long-standing, I think, misrepresentation of Jewish economic uh, um, occupations in this period, telling you that Jews were mostly in, involved in money lending and perhaps, you know, as peddlers, uh, and here and there a few doctors. And all of a sudden, I think by um, um, if we broaden our um, our scope, if we broaden the lens, then we all of a sudden see that Jews were involved in a range of, of, in some cases, quite colorful activities and things that certainly required collaboration with Christians. Yeah, you know, one of the really interesting things I found about um, your work, especially in the, um, the sections that you really talk about alchemy and medicine, is that it really opened up also opportunities for Jewish women during this period, as I think you mentioned a little earlier. Um, what was this connection, if you could say a few words about Jewish women in medicine? Why was this sort of like an area in which Jewish women found um, new opportunities? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, a certain, um, it's a certain kind of medicine, right? I mean, you also have back in the day, you have the more academic uh, 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 forms of medicine, the medicine that is taught at universities and that basically consists of uh, knowledge passed down from antiquity. Um, now, that was always a very exclusive field, also socially exclusive. There was something that, uh, you know, women, neither Jewish women nor Christian women had access to. But here again, if we if we look at if we look at the, the situation outside these more normative institutions, we see that there is a very brisk market in, in medical knowledge that is taking place in everyday situations that includes folk medicine, for instance. And that's clearly an area where women had um, were, um, uh, uh, were actually sought after. It's also a reminder that, um, and I've argued that elsewhere as well, when Jews and Christians interacted in this period, they didn't always just interact as Christians and Jews. They also, there were certain solidarities along gender lines, um, Jewish women resorting on, say, um, Christian midwives, and uh, um, that happens as well. There is, um, and there is that knowledge exchange between women, even if they are from different confessional uh, religious uh, camps. And, um, in, in, but again, that is all happening in, in settings that are not academic and that are hence a little more difficult for us to reconstruct as historians to, to track. Um, but I'm, one of the things I was trying to do is to show that there is that um, really uh, multifaceted economy also of medical knowledge. Certainly. You also look at the realm of diplomacy and even espionage, another um, area which, again, I found surprising. And you argue that um, Christian authorities in particular often thought the Jews were well-placed for acts of diplomacy and espionage, um, either through poisoning or secret correspondence um, with other Jews through forms of cryptography. Um, why did they hold these views of Jews and to 
what extent were Jews actually involved in these acts? Right. I, this is, I mean, this brings me back to my, um, to things that I said earlier and that are very important, I think, to my argument. A, uh, that whole phenomenon of espionage emer- becoming so important in this period, that's something distinctively early modern. In the Middle Ages, um, we don't see, we don't see, say, things like uh, cryptography or the, uh, you know, um, the use of cipher in diplomatic correspondence. The whole diplomatic system, the, the ambassadorial system, um, um, emerges from the Renaissance onwards. And that's well known. That has a lot to do with the, the formation of city-states, in, in especially starting in Italy and so on. So here we have something that is um, that is new in this period, and I'm arguing that Jews played an important role in that in that um, area because they were supremely um, supremely equipped to uh, play an important role. They were often multilingual. Um, they were shuttling back and forth um, between different parts of uh, of Europe, even between the, the Ottoman Empire and and Europe. So. Could also rely on far-flung uh, connections, trade connections, so on, family connections, and um, of course there is. Um, speaking of cryptography, that is the uh, you know the, the skills to put things in cipher. Um, I think that Christian cryptographers were actually very eager to learn from Jews about. Um, traditional Jewish methods of cryptography, which we know existed for centuries. Uh, think of gematria, for instance, which is a, a Kabbalistic method for uh, um, commuting letters, and and there are other methods that that been part form part of the the um, um, rabbinical tradition of of um, of, of um, how how should you say of um, uh, putting things in, in cipher, this, uh, um, yes. mm-hmm. um, encrypting, encrypting, encrypting texts. Uh, so here, so here again, you have that um, you have that tension, but also productive tension, I believe, between uh, uh, something that is a stereotype between stereotypes and something that Jews take up, pick some Jews, pick up and turn into an asset, and then become a, a middleman in in ways that are quite fascinating to study for the historian. You also shed light on a very um, surprising trade for some Jews in this period, that of technology, um, particularly focusing on Jews who um, became engineers, architects, inventors, even weapons procurers and dealers. And how is this engagement related to um, your broader argument about the economy of secrets and, um, as you mentioned, the early formation of the modern state? Right. The um, the case of technology also requires perhaps some uh, you know, terminological um, clarification, because we um, we we do um, we do think of um, technology or new inventions as something that is, um, you know, should be made accessible, publicly accessible, and and patents are basically the uh, 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 has become the or have become the vehicle for that. Now, patents existed or had just emerged in this period, but they uh, that meant something entirely different. A patent granting a patent was not about making knowledge or invention. Accessible to the public, it was about um, um, the exclusive use of that invention, but for um, the government or the authorities. So, if you um, so, uh, there's a large number of Jews who applied for patents. In, for instance, in Venice, uh, to my own surprise, uh, the third largest group of, of uh, inventors filing for patents, technological patents, are Jews in this period. Um, but again, this is not about making. Uh, discoveries available to the public. It's about keeping them secret and, and, and their exploitation by uh, the authorities. So in that sense, technology and state formation are, are 
um, are really entwined, especially when it comes to military technology. And there's a fair, as you say, there's a fair number of Jews I found who uh, were involved in warfare technology, um, gunpowder production, and so on. And that, that, in a way, I think should should make us rethink the assumption that Jews in this period were, you know, totally powerless. That they had um, that they had that basically everything having to do with uh, warfare and. Uh, and the army was that, that that was off off limits for them. In fact, I um, I think Jews played a much more important role in in that in that whole area of um, of of the modern state and its its emergence. The uh, the protagonist, uh, the main protagonist of my book, um, was a very successful um, engineer who um, created apparently. So the sources tell us uh, warfare vehicles, uh, all kinds of new kinds of gunpowders, new kinds of guns. And so on. So we have to uh, we have to find space in the way we um, depict Jewish history in this period. We have to find space to accommodate these figures and what they what they did. The uh, the old dichotomy of between you know powerful Christian authorities and Jews who were basically uh, uh, relied on the on on the grace of of these authorities doesn't that that is too much of a simplification. There are Jews are way more involved. Some Jews are way more involved in. In you know even military operations and the military sector uh, industry at the time, then I think older scholarship has has assumed. That's certainly com- a compelling argument that you put forth. Yes, um, you know it's interesting that you really have in this um, section where you talk about technology and inventions, such um, concrete practices, and you really move from there to talking about. Jewish involvement in a trade, which is almost the opposite, in that um, the trade of unicorn horns, and that this was actually a, um, I don't know, a popular, but certainly a very legitimate practice during this period. And once again, we find Jewish involvement here. Um, What is happening here? And how does, how do unicorn horns become a thing? Well, that was also for me, you know, perhaps one of the more amusing parts of that uh, research to, um, first of all, to realize, um, you know, how different, how foreign also uh, the knowledge economy at the time was uh, compared by, you know, if you compare it to ours. So a thing like unicorn horn or the powder made from unicorn horn was, in fact, one of the most sought after, um, you know, precious things at, in the period, at the time. We know, for instance, that uh, unicorn horns, or what would, was believed to be unicorn horns, was um, fetched the highest prices in the uh, in the the market for uh, precious and and, and and esoteric things. The uh, the Habsburg emperors, for instance, uh, um, presented their the one unicorn horn that they had acquired as the. Uh, um, uh, very prominently in their Wunderkammer. And in fact, it was one of the two objects that were um, forbidden or prohibited to be sold in, in perpetuity. So there are only two objects in the Habsburg Wunderkammer that, uh, um, that were, um, that, you know, were, were stipulated that they should always uh, remain there. And one of them was the unicorn horn. And uh, people thought, people really thought that unicorns existed. They thought that they lived in, um, in, in the Far East. And especially in places like India. And now the question arose: Who can actually procure these um, these objects? We now know that these were now wall um, uh, horns. So they're obviously there are no unicorns, but there are <laughs> uh, whales um, uh, whales that are sort of uh, that, that have these um, um, long horns uh, protruding from their head. And these things had to come to Europe somehow. And and I show that 
again, relying on far-flung trade networks, Jews were able to procure these things. They certainly believed, some of them certainly believed that these were true unicorn horns. Unicorn horns, one of the reasons why they were such prized objects was because they were thought to be in basically a panacea, uh, um, an antidote that would work against any kind of poison if you take it orally. And uh, that links up to um, what you mentioned earlier, that there was also a certain involvement of Jews in the in in um, in the trade in in medical um, in medical um, substances, which sometimes included uh, poisons. Um, so uh, so here you see how um, something that uh, seems very exotic to us actually fits into uh, the knowledge economy at the time, and and is another of these opportunities again that that allowed Jews to uh, become very important um, middlemen. Hmm. Well, speaking of middleman, um, you provide readers with a chapter dedicated to a single individual, Abramo Klorny, and suggest that his life intersected time and again with the economy of secrets in different ways through his different roles. Uh, can you tell us a bit about him and why you think he really encapsulates the themes of your work so well? Yeah, I, he, he is basically the figure that drew me into this project. Mm. I- was at the very beginning of this. I was, to be honest, I was never planning to write that book uh, uh, until I came across uh, his story. It's what sparked my interest. I remember I found his traces in um, in a southern German archive, where um, you know, in a place where Jews for four hundred centuries were not allowed to live. And I came across this case of what the sources referred to as a Jewish magician, and became very curious to find out who is that person who. Uh, became quite successful at court at a time when there were no Jews in that duchy. So I started to investigate his story. It turns out he's from Italy originally. He had been a, he started out as a court engineer um, in uh, northern Italy at the court, court of the Este and the court of the uh, Gonzaga in Ferrara and Mantua, respectively. And from there, made a stellar career that took him to um, north of the Alps, to um, the Holy Roman Empire. And he, at some point, he joined the imperial court in Prague, where he distinguished himself with um, um, all kinds of um, military inventions, especially gunpowder production. Uh, He always also um, um, was a, a practitioner of magic and of alchemy, um, like someone who wrote a treatise on cryptography, on chiromancy, that is palm reading. Uh, so a, a, a jack of, tra- of all trades, if you will, but very, very successful and not certainly not an exception because the, um, he, he, as, I, as I was saying earlier, there is, um, he's, he's not the only one. He's perhaps one of the most colorful ones, but not the only one. And his, his family, even after he died, continued to operate in this uh, economy of secrets. His own son became also a very successful Professor of Secrets. That, that is the, the label that Colony was given in his lifetime, Professor of Secrets, Professore dei Secreti in, in Italian. Um, so that story really is what prompted me to look into this in a systematic fashion and to realize that there is all these, there are all these um, um, opportunities that existed that uh, fall a bit outside of the, the, the traditional narrative, the, the way we historians have traditionally depicted the involvement of Jews in, in the knowledge economy or in the scientific revolution. But that doesn't mean that we should neglect this. And I think by opening our perspective, we, we, get, we end up getting a much richer picture of, of Jewish history at the time. Let me ask you, to which extent, uh, to what extent do you find that these different forms of secret knowledge and engagement between Jews and Christians relate um, or really reflect economic interests? Is it political interests? Is it all of the above? Like, what should we take away from this? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think there are two there are two takeaways, perhaps I hope. Um, one relating to Jewish history, and the other sort of to general history. So let me start with the Jewish history part. As I as I was saying, the um, um, there's there is quite a bit of scholarship out there that has argued that Jews played no role, almost no role in the so-called scientific revolution, and that's true. From if you apply a very strict definition of the scientific revolution, if you associate it with what is called the new science of people like Galileo and Newton and so on, then you won't find a Jewish Newton and you won't find a Jewish Galileo. That is a very much a Christian business. But um, I argue that that very focus on the scientific scientific revolution, on the so-called new science, is in a way narrows down our perspective. The, um, there was a much broader, much richer knowledge economy at the time. And I, if we actually include that, we see that Jews were very present in, in these fields and that we cannot reduce the economic uh, and scientific history of, of, of the Jews in early modern Europe to a handful of, of professions. Um, so that's the takeaway for, um, for Jewish history. The, the takeaway for um, general history is perhaps to... Um, to realize that there, there are categories such as secrecy, which might at first seem pretty monolithic to us and sort of resistant to historical change, but in fact, um, you know, do change over time. The, what we associate with these things, the, the, the connotations that we, um, that we um, have when we talk about these things like secrecy, they're very much subject to historical change that we today think that secrecy is a, for, a kind of a bad thing about withholding knowledge, suppressing knowledge, um, doesn't mean that people at any given, at every given time of period of history thought, thought that way. And so in a way, I hope the book would also force readers or, or at least prompt readers to, um, to reconsider um, um, these categories and, and, and the way they became so uh, powerful in, 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 you know, in modern thought. Thank you. I also just want to ask you, um, have you begun thinking about a new project? And if so, can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek? Yeah, thank you. Well, that's actually, I, I continue to be interested in that very point that I, I mentioned. Why have, we, why have we come to think about a certain forms of knowledge as deficient? Why have we come to think about a secrecy as something bad? So my new project is, uh, um, will be a history of uh, transparency, um, but I come, so I'm, I remain interested in the dialectics of openness and secrecy of public knowledge and private knowledge. Um, but I, this time I'll come from a very different perspective. This time I'll try to rehearse that argument from a material culture point of view. So I'm particularly interested in transparency as a material experience, and that would that will lead me a lot into the history of architecture, actually. So uh, not too much Jewish history in that new project, but I think the same underlying interest in why certain forms of knowledge have um, become powerful and why others have um, um, have, have been not obliterated, but basically being pushed to the margins. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading about that. Thank you. Daniel, thanks again for being on the show. Again, check out The Age of Secrecy, Jews, Christians, and the Economy of Secrets, 1400 to 1800 by Daniel Yuta, published in 2015 by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 